Greetings and welcome to a special edition of Starkville, a show unlike any we've done before. Uh, I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. And today I'm joined not just by my friend and teammate Doug Glanville, but also by Ken Rosenthal to discuss one of the most impactful and powerful projects they've ever worked on, uh, a conversation with an impassioned and eloquent group of recently retired African-American baseball players about race, baseball, and the state of modern America. So Doug, Ken, welcome. Thank you for doing what you did. And just curious, what's been some of the reaction that you've heard in the days since this story was published in The Athletic on Tuesday? It's been very positive, Jason. And I was expecting, given the tenor of the times, some blowback. Some people telling me, stick to sports, no politics, the usual. And in fact, I had a tweet ready to go in response to any such talk. And it really didn't surface. And for the most part, people read it and were struck by it and were impacted by it. And whenever I write, and it's true even of a mundane baseball story, a transaction story, I have one goal. It's to make people think. It's kind of the thing that governs me. Now, some stories are not going to do that, really. They're just informative or whatever. But in a grander scale, that's my goal, always, on columns and things of that nature. And Jason, you know that too. You do it so well with your columns. So that was the goal here. And it really is gratifying that it seems we reached that goal. And that's hard to do. And in this day and age, it's hard to get people to listen to another viewpoint. And that was my thought here. And it seems like it got done. So good to hear. Doug, what about you? Yeah, it's it's been really powerful to not only read the reactions, whether social media, but almost the where, where the story ended up going. I think that has been uh, just as powerful as, as sort of the process you see people taking it and applying it in various ways, expanding upon it. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely what you want to see when you talk about challenging people to think and rethink, uh, to bring up new questions. And, you know, for me, there is a, almost a therapeutic component to what I'm reading and seeing because there's a support behind it. Uh, it was being part of a project of my peers, right? There was players on that, in that panel that were teammates and, they were uh, opponents, but we also had this shared experience. And just to see the reaction amongst whether it's other players or whether it was just through people who just hadn't thought about it in this sort of depth or just had not had access to this information, that was uh, that was extremely inspiring in many ways. Because as, as Ken's saying, you just don't know how these moments will go. I've had experiences where I know that there's there's blowback because I took a position or a stand or I wrote about something that wasn't necessarily going to be popular or politically expedient. But uh, in, in this case, there is you know generally a powerful tenor, a very positive tenor about the importance of even raising the subject. And and it just gives you some semblance of hope of the openness that we are experiencing and and hopefully we'll be able to sustain that. Well, whatever we can do to help sustain that is well worth doing. And uh, if you're listening to us now, maybe you've already read this incredible story. 
Maybe you haven't, but today you're going to get a chance to hear these players speak in their voices to your ears. Um, those players, in case you haven't read this, were Tory Hunter, Latroy Hawkins, Jimmy Rollins, Ryan Howard, and Dontrell Willis. And before we hear their incredible conversation, I want to ask you two guys, how did all this come about? Ken, let's start with you. Well, Jason, it came about with me attempting to find a current player, just one, who would talk about George Floyd and the impact on him, a current African-American player, not a white player. And I reached out to one player who I know, and he said to me, I would love to talk about this, but I fear for the safety of my family. If I go there, I just don't want to do it. And then I reached out to another player who I wanted to talk to about a variety of topics. And I also got a no from him through his agent. Polite, all, all good. And I'm sitting there thinking about this. And when I got the text from the first player saying he was not comfortable doing it, I was actually on a walk with my wife. And she's not really a baseball fan. She doesn't even read me all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> as most wives should not. <laughs> <laughs> but she said to me, how about a retired player? And my initial reaction was, no, nah, that's not going to work. Not this time. We need a current player. But then as we kept walking, it was one of those long quarantine walks. <laughs> I kept thinking, and I was just wondering, what if I got a group of retired players? Could we do it by Zoom? Would that work? And then I reached out to a few. I think Dontrell might have been the first. I worked with him at Fox. Jimmy Rollins as well. I can't remember the order. And then I asked our editors, Paul Fichtenbaum and Emma Spam, what they thought of the idea. Because it was kind of in the early process. I wasn't really doing much with it yet. I just checked in with those guys to see if they'd be interested. And they were good with the idea. They liked it. And Emma said, hey, what about Doug to serve as kind of a co-moderator? And I said, great. Amazing idea. I know Doug and I listen to you guys. and." Doug is one of the most thoughtful people I've ever run across. And as I kept thinking about it, we started to add players. And I honestly thought, you know what? As I wrote, Doug should be the moderator. Forget me. Because he's three things I'm not. One, he's a former major league player. So he could speak to these peers of his on their level. Two, he's African-American. And three, Doug is a college professor. And... Because he's a college professor, I felt, well, he's got a group of five, six guys here. He can keep that going, engage them. That's not something I normally do. Actually, I don't know that I've ever done it, really. So I asked Doug. Doug was in. Doug was actually the one who recommended Latroy. Because at that point, we had Ryan Howard, Jimmy Rollins, Dontrell Willis, and Torrey Hunter. And I thought that might be enough. Four guys. I don't know if we should go any bigger because Doug was going to contribute as well. But my reaction to Doug was, well, why not add one more? And I'm so glad we did because Latroy was so thoughtful and well-spoken on these topics, as were all these guys. I thought the insight was incredible. And to me, the goal was simply to have these players explain what they went through, what their feelings were about what was going on, because I knew more implicitly than explicitly, but I knew their life experiences were much different than mine, much different than any 
white person can understand. And I've always told my kids, the thing that bugs me the most about the racial divide in our country is that friends of mine, African-American friends, cannot walk down the street in this country as comfortably as you and I. That, to me, is devastating. And I thought the players would be able to vocalize that, put it in their own words and their own experiences, and that would make it something perhaps that would be really worthwhile. Turned into something much more than that. And as I was sitting there listening that night, and I was mostly just listening, it was overwhelming, really, to hear these stories. And I felt the pain of these guys. And it, it just really bothered me that we were at this point. And that's the whole thing. If people can see, if people just listen, I think Tori talked about just relationships and understanding others and talking to other people who are different than yourself. That to me is how you get to some kind of breakthrough. It's a starting point. There's a lot more to do. So that's how it came together. And I told my wife repeatedly in the days since, thanks for that idea. And she's like, what are you talking about? I didn't have the idea. But she did have the idea to go to the retired players. And that is what made it all work because as we discuss on the round table, current players are just not comfortable in this sport talking about these kinds of issues. Exactly. And Doug, what did you think when Ken approached you and what happened from there? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I, I remember I was outside uh, in the yard and the kids were running around and, and I got a text message from Ken and I, I looked at it and, and immediately I saw, I think you listed some possible uh, names of people that might be involved. And, you know, he talked about the subject matter and I was like, yeah, this is good. I, I, I think I, my first response was pretty short, right? Kind of was something like count me in or something. It was, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was excited about it because I, I saw the potential and I've always enjoyed the, the possibility of engaging in these group settings, especially, you know, doing my work and, and teaching at, at the various universities over the last three years. So I, I just knew that the current player would be a challenge <laughs> that, that I definitely understood. And I know when I was a current player, I had those same kinds of concerns about uh, what if I say this and what if I say that. I remember even working in the Players Association as a union rep. Uh, that was a little scary because here I was fighting for certain rights and the position of players. And then then you have Major League Baseball team owners like, oh, this guy's causing trouble. You know, I didn't know. And I remember one day the late David Montgomery called the locker room after I'd done an interview on local television talking about the owner's position and the player's position that was very balanced. And, he, and the phone rang in the locker room. And he said, I just wanted you to know that I really appreciate your balanced perspective on this. You didn't trash us. You, you were fair, but you were informative. And that gave me great hope that, okay, maybe there is something to this space of common ground coming together. And through that, the spirit of that, this was the opportunity to dissect a very painful and complicated relationship with race in America and also what uh, with George Floyd and how that's taken the country. So I have always been taught growing up that I ha you, you need to use your voice and your platform 
I credit my parents. My mother was active in civil rights in my hometown and locally. My father was an immigrant from Trinidad and Tobago. And my father, because he came from a country that was effectively all black, he didn't see those barriers of, well, hey, you can't do this. There wasn't this sense of you can't be the president. You can't be. It was already happening where he came from, where my mom growing up in the South had this sort of Jim Crow experience. So I came up in a hometown that had voluntarily desegregated and people had access to each other. And so our, our, my approach was always solution-based and that it was possible that people could learn and open their minds and just by exposure and intimacy and sharing. And although we have a very tough climate for that, where there's the, the polarization can be so vehement and ideological, there's still a lot of moderation and places in the space that we can talk. So Ken's idea brought that to me in a certain wave of like, yeah, this is possible. This is something that could really come out and it's something I want to talk about. And it was very therapeutic on a lot of levels for me to have people I could talk to directly in the very similar status and similar place. Uh, so I welcomed it. And once I once Ken sort of threw out more and more about being a moderator, I was very excited because I had this wealth of data in my curriculum that I've used over the last three years to say, hey, I can I could bring a lot of these elements to support and help advance the conversation. So uh, you know, thanks to Ken and and the athletic to kind of running with this. And we're in a time where, you know, you think back to last season even, if you were play if we were playing baseball right now, we don't have these conversations. That's that's the great opportunity. And as you said, Ken, the 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 backlash that I've definitely seen in other scenarios has not been what it was. Uh, and I think we have to capture this lightning in a bottle because it's a chance to heal our country. Well, I'm grateful to both of you guys for doing what you did. Um, I, don't, I can't say this enough. Uh, this was so amazing and so impactful. And now, if you're listening, what you're about to hear is a group of eloquent African-American athletes speaking from their heart on issues that their sport and their country are wrestling with right now. Uh, we'll be back later to discuss what we heard. I'm going to turn this over to Doug Glanville. I thought it'd be great to kind of kick off this idea of, you know, what was, what's the difference in your evolution in knowing that, you know, we have the civil unrest around the death of George Floyd at the hands of police. And now at this time, we're, we're in the post career, we have a certain level of comfort. So, you know, what do you think about uh, what it was to be a current player trying to address these issues? Um, well, obviously, you know, we've all been there, you know, when things have happened and it's just the culture of baseball. It's, it's not a, um, a clubhouse or, or a home where you're actually very comfortable walking in, saying those things or, or bringing up those things outside of your, your, your little group, you know, three or four guys going to talk about it in a clubhouse uh, on the field during stretch and all those things. But outside of that, it really doesn't leave that group. You may feel away, you may show your anger, um, but yet still the guys in that clubhouse are the guys that you're taking a field with that day that you're traveling with for the rest of that year. So you have to find that balance of dealing with it, you know, having a place to go, having people to bounce it off, but not making it an issue in the clubhouse. Um, Obviously, our counterparts, our white counterparts, uh, 
they have a completely different view. They don't have to grow up, you know, having that talk. And we all know what that talk is. Um, they don't have to grow up or even getting in a car, drive down the street and be like, man, I know I didn't do anything wrong, but this cop been behind me for two blocks. Something's about to happen. They, they don't have those fears. And every time something like this happens, and as a player, you know exactly what's going on. You've been, you've been taught this. You've been, been made to be aware of it. Um, so when you get in the clubhouse, you do look at your, your counterparts, you know, and, and you look at them, and they're going on about their day as if nothing happened. And you got three or four guys in the clubhouse, and we're looking at each other like, man, you see that? You know what that's about. What can we do? And then it's four versus, you know, 21. It makes it a little uncomfortable. Um, but I, now that I'm done, I, I don't really, I can't say I don't care as much um, about others' opinions, but I really don't. It, it, it is what it is. I don't have to walk into a clubhouse. I can go ahead and, and, and say my piece. And if someone wants to call me or text me, I'm okay with that. But I think it's also as, as you become older, you become more mature in your thoughts. You find ways to express yourself. Uh, you see the world slightly differently because you're no longer in that bubble of sports and being in protection mode and having people that will, you know, um, I guess have your back. You, you, you're more on your own. You stand up for yourself a lot more, I think, in those situations than you do when you were a player. And as a player, they always say you, you're trying to keep that clubhouse, you know, even keel and focus on the game. But there are plenty of times you're going out there with something else on your mind and have a couple guys on the team is always good to uh, have so you can bounce that off of so you don't have to let it explode throughout the clubhouse if somebody does something that rubs you the wrong way. Yeah, I, I agree with you, J-Roll. For me, um, Jackie Robinson definitely set the tone as far as how to behave um, through racial adversity. Uh, one, because you don't want to ruin the situation for the next person, for your kids, you know, for uh, ruining the chance to play at the highest level. So, you know, we're always taught to be, this as a culture, be the bigger person, you know, have class, you know, understand the situation, not for just for yourself, or for your parents and, and for the people in front of you. So for me, I always tried to just be the bigger person and be a captain and be a leader. Um, but now as I have children that are growing up and, and they're seeing all these things and, and they're receiving it, I, I have more of a responsibility to myself and to my family to really teach them what's really going on in the real world so they can have the tools and the strength to live, you know, the best life they can. So, but it's tough because you don't want to be ridiculed. You don't want your message to be misinterpreted, which a lot of the times that we're seeing that right now is going on. So, you know, it's a tough situation when you're representing a community. Um, let's be frank, we're making a lot of money. <laughs> we're not used to being, none of us are heirs. So, you know, this is a tough situation. So we got to learn on the fly. But for me, it was just a, 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 a stance for me to just say, hey, man, I, I got to step forward and speak and uh, for my children. I think we just never wanted to be the distraction in the clubhouse by um, talking about, you know, social, social injustice, you know, doing your career. But like they said, like, once you get away from that, you got a responsibility to yourself, your family to speak out and and bring awareness. And I got an 18 year old daughter. I don't have any sons. I got a daughter. My daughter was marching in LA yesterday from the peaceful protest. So, and she got that from her parents. And it makes me proud to know that even though she grew up in a situation like this where she's in the suburbs, right. still has some sense of pride of, you know, her race. And she's all for it. But yeah, being in the clubhouse is different. You never want to be that distraction to your team. You never want to be that distraction.
Yeah, man, I um, I agree with all these guys, man. They we, we're all kind of saying the same thing. Um, never wanted to be that guy who was always uh, talking about racial issues, even though you were going through it. You see it as plain as day, and and your 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 white uh, teammates they can't see it, and you, you want to talk to some of them, but you can't. Um, and so we always talked amongst ourselves, and it was like a little huddle, but it never got too far. You'll have somebody like Sheffield who was called militant, but he told you a truth for years, and and no one listened. They 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 said he was militant. It, he he got probably got kicked out of baseball a little earlier than than he should have been. And you see those things. It's kind of like it's kind of like a harness, and we can't do much because of what happened to him. If you did it to him, you're gonna do it to me. So I better be careful what I say. You know, I stepped out and said a lot of different things and I got scrutinized for it. And it kind of suppressed me a little bit, but I always spoke on a lot of issues and I got backlash all the time. Uh, but I was telling you a truth that you couldn't understand. And, and sometimes I would get people come to me, man, you need to shut up or you need to be quiet or different things like that. I'm like, I can't because it's happening right here. Uh, we had a situation with Troy and I in, in our organization, but uh, no names, no nothing like that. But we had a situation last year, uh, players getting called the N-word or um, uh, turn your, your kind of music down or different things like that. And now that we're in that front office, we, we said, hey, do something about it. And we go to Derek Falvey right away. Bam! Derek Falvey did something about it. That's what we need. Derek Favi got the information, went and did it, didn't cover it up, didn't do anything. Somebody that's been there for a long time, he got him out of there because we can't do that. It's time for change. So that's why I got so much respect for Derek Favi for listening to LaTroy and I and listening to some of the players on the team in the big leagues right now with the Twins that voiced their opinion about what this guy was saying to them and voiced their, their problem, their complaint. And they're doing it. That's what it's going to take. Someone has to speak up. So just to have LaTroy and I there, these guys come to us and tell us, we investigate, and we go tell Derek Falvey, he investigate. He said, oh, that's, that's terrible. And he gets them out. That's what we need. That's the change that we need in the organization. I think the Minnesota Twins are doing a great job of doing that, and I, res I respect that organization to the fullest. And um, talk so, about Derek, you got to talk about that also. Tori, because Thad actually went Thad to that Remember the Titans is filmed. He went to that high school from Remember the Titans. So he understands how, you know, he understands, you know, the social injustice and wanting everybody to be comfortable in their workplace. Yeah, and I think, I think what you gentlemen are speaking about is uh, leadership positions, right? Because, you know, there's often this criticism about, well, you know, you have the biggest platform when you're, you know, in the World Series and you're right there during your playing career. So there's a lot of questions about why not speak now, right? And you're talking about the tactical components of leadership, right? Being in, empowered. So I guess that I could follow that up with this idea of, of management and coaches, right? You know, what do you see in that role specific to, to baseball and speaking to why that's important in these type of times and issues? Man, that's 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 well put. Um, you, you, you know, you, you have to have people of all backgrounds stick their neck out for each other. And there has to be a common respect and appreciation for your fellow man. And I think that's gotten lost in the United States. Um, 
you, you know, lack of respect, you know, you, you hear our wives talk about this a lot and it, you know, it was a word that went over my head, uh, the meaning of it, the true meaning of respect. And you have to be able to appreciate um, and see the good in people. And I just think right now they just don't see the good in us unless we're entertaining them. And that's just my opinion about it. That's just the bottom line. You see us all in every walk of life, whether it be entertainment, whether it be athletics, whether it be, you know, uh, frontline in the army, uh, anything you can think of, African-Americans have played a big role in this. And they respect this when we go out there and we put our lives on the line, we put our talents on the line. But as soon as we get out of that, that, that stadium or that forum, it's almost like that respect is diminished. And we've given everything to this country. We've given everything, generation after generation. I mean, I can't stress enough. I mean, my, my, my grandfather fought in the war. My mom was in the army. My cousin's a, a sheriff in Hayward. So I have people that have brought things to the community. So I feel very blessed to come from that type of background. And it, it just breaks my heart that we're at this point in 2020, we're right back to the fight that our grandparents fought and died for, hoping that it'd be better for our parents and, and so on and so forth. So it, it's disheartening not only for seeing blacks like this, but as well as for whites, because you know we need to learn how to respect and appreciate each other because we all can bring good to each other. But I'm, I'm just truly hurt and sad that we're at this point right now. I saw a quote that said, um, Caucasians want our rhythm, but they don't want our blues. They want our rhythm, but they don't want our blues. And that, that resonated with me because it's true. Like you said, we're entertainers, all walks of life. You know, you got African-Americans doing great things, but there's still a harness, like Tori said. There's a harness that's pulling them back. You can't go, you can't, you really can't be yourself. Once you leave the entertainment realm, you're driving down the street, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Um, it's just sad. It's, it's just one of those things like, when will it change? And people are upset. People are furious. Right. Everybody talking about burning things down and, and people are looting and doing this and doing that. I look at it like this. You know who taught black people how to loot and riot? The KKK. They taught them how to do that. They did that shit first. They did it first. And people are tired. They are upset. They're tired of not being heard. Colin Kaepernick did a peaceful a peaceful protest and he got crucified for it. Now, now things aren't so peaceful. People still getting crucified for it. But if people don't, if the people, right people don't start listening, our, our people and the people that stand with us, they're not gonna, they're gonna be relentless because they're tired of seeing African-Americans, minorities just killed in the street like dogs. They're tired. We're tired. I'm tired of, like you said, you driving down a highway, coming back from burying my grandfather, and the police get behind me. I got over. He wasn't pulling me over, but I still had this feeling that I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have to feel like that as a black man in America. I shouldn't have to feel like that, but I did. And it's just, it's, it's a lot. And player, and most people don't understand what players go through. Players go through a lot. African-American players go through a lot. The mental stress of where you come from, how you were raised, how the system was set up for you to completely fail, and then when you make it, having, having the, the, the hood on your shoulders to try to give back and bring people up to where you are. That's a whole lot for an African-American kid who's getting money, a lot of money, 
and he has no clue how to manage it. He don't know who to trust. There's a lot. You know, why don't we unpack your reactions to George, George Floyd and, and the police by the killing by the hands of the police and you know, what, what, how did that evolve? What, what was your first reaction? And then what's sort of changed over the last few days, the last week? When I, when I saw what happened the first day, um, I, I found myself that, that, mo- that the next day at 3 a.m. in the morning, I just got out of the bed and I went into my office and I was sitting in my, my chair and looking out of the window and, and I just started to cry, you know, um, because I have three sons that I've been talking to my whole life, even as a professional baseball player. And I've been talking to them my whole life about carry yourself this way. Be careful about this. If cops pull you over this, do this and do that. I shouldn't have to feel that way. I shouldn't have to tell my sons that when you go out, every day you go out that that house, I have to tell you to be respectful, be smart, be, be quiet. Don't say much. Don't, I shouldn't have to tell them that. No, no parent, no white family has to say that. When you talk about white privilege, I had someone tell me, white privilege, my parents have to work and they got everything they got by working. I said, that ain't white privilege. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you can drive down the street and police get behind you like Latroy said, and you ain't even worried about it. I can, you can tell your kid, all right, have a good day. I can't say that. I say, hey, man. This happened, this happened, this happened, so they won't get killed. Or they, they got to come home and say, someone called me the N-word today at school. How do you, what, what are you supposed to do? What we have to do is come to a peaceful solution and ha- build relationships with one another. Be uncomfortable being uncomfortable. Come to my house. Let me go to your house. Let me get to know you, you get to know us. Let's talk about and have a little dialogue about what we need to do for change. And you know what? It's all about relationships. If we can get back to that, that's what's gonna change us. Yeah, and you're talking about access, right? You know, just exposure, you know, and, and you know, J. Rowe, you, you, you know, think back to your first, uh, you know, encounter with learning about George Floyd. I mean, what was that like for you? You know, it, it was one of those things that it's sad to say, you were kind of expecting him to be shot. We're kind of used to that, like another black man got shot. But to see him, you know, sit there minute after minute after minute after minute, you already have him cuffed. You want to keep, you already have him cuffed. So you want to keep him down, put your knee in his back. Put your, put your hand on his shoulder. You know, as he tried to make a move, do something. But no, you literally sat there in defiance, like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Like, like, like you said, his life doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is he will listen when I tell him to do whatever it is I tell him to do. He did. He didn't want to get in the car, so we. So, so they say. So now this is his, this is his, uh, his consequence. So it was in the beginning. It was more shock. It was just like this dude. Like he really just sat there on his neck. And then, you know, the next day you think about it, and I remember I was picking up some food and like, I just I just started crying, just just angry because it's like, what do you do? Like this man has no remorse. There was not one. Second, it, it appeared that he really considered, it was kind of like, I hear you, but I'm not going to do it because so I don't want to. I don't have to do it. I'm protected by the badge. You know, if he dies, he dies. Kind of like that. You know, and, and that was his attitude. And that's the part that really, really gets me. It's like how many other people, whether behind a badge or just in life, literally have the same feeling, think the same way, that if this person dies because 
I'm white and he's black and he didn't listen to what I said, then I'm going to do what I want to do with him until I get his compliance. And if he dies, he dies. And, and I understand the frustration why people are, are the, the, the rioting, the looting, the protesting. You know, it, it all escalates. It starts out with, as a protest, then police come around, then it turns riotous, and then looting happens. But you can look at it at, at, at two men, you know, in, in the black community, you know, historically. You have Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X stood on different sides of the fence, right? They both were assassinated fighting for the same thing. So what is the right way to do it? What is the right way to do it? I'm like, it, it kind of like how Jimmy said, it's like this dude is really just sitting on his neck. But what got me was he's telling you he can't breathe. Like you haven't learned from the past in, in senses of, of what happened in Ferguson, what happened in some of the other cities to where this man is telling you he's on the ground, he's handcuffed. You've got four or five different police officers right there. There's no need for that. My man started crying out for his mother. At what other point do you, at what point do you think this dude is a threat when he's saying, for, he's calling for his mom? It, it, it's it's, it's got to change. And listening to, to Troy and Tori's stories about riding around with the police. And there was, it was that same thing. We talked about that earlier. When the police pull up behind you, you like, oh man, do I have all my stuff in order? Is my registration up to up to par? Do I even have it? Do I have this? Do I have that? Wait, let me make sure I get my wallet out so it's not in a place to where I have to ruffle, you know what I mean, to give this dude cause. And it does. It goes back to the whole white privilege thing to where they cannot understand what it's like to have to be in that situation. I actually had a situation in Philadelphia uh, back in 08. Oh seven. We had just gotten home from a road trip. It was like three, four in the morning, something like that. So we're leaving the park. I'm I've lived downtown and I'm in my Escalade. So I'm in an Escalade, got the big rims on it, 26 inch rims, windows tinted, had the police car. Everybody knows what the police car lights look like, what the headlights look like. So I'm like, Oh, okay, let me act right because this cop is, right behind me. So I'm going to try to let this dude pass. We pull up to the same light. He pulls up next to me. I'm going left. He's going right. Light turns green. Boom. Signal on, doing everything proper. Make my left turn. He sits there at the light. Two seconds later, boom, makes the left, comes, follows me. Pulls me over and, you know, asks for license registration, the whole gig, the whole nine. And I asked him, I said, well, I said, officer, could you tell me what I was doing? And he's like, well, I ran your plates and nothing came back. And I was like, isn't that isn't like a good thing? Like, what, like I didn't speed, I didn't run any lights, I wasn't doing anything crazy, but you felt the need to pull me over. And then another police officer pulled up, a black officer had pulled up, and he went over to the dude and he said, hey man, like, yo, like you know who that is, this, that, and the third. And then he came over and talked to me, because then the dude wound up leaving, and I said, look, man, if I'm breaking a law, like, I don't care who I am, what I do, that don't matter. If I'm running a light, if I'm not signaling or doing whatever, and you pull me over, that's fine. But when he tells me he pulled me over because he ran my tag and nothing came back, you know, it's like, right. what, what am I supposed to do? And the guy, the, the black officer said, yeah, man, you know, yeah, that dude's done that like a few times. And he, he ended up getting reprimanded uh by his superiors 
But when you have people like that, that are, that are working in that kind of capacity, what, what can you do? You know, I'm in Connecticut, so I work on the police council. And so we work on the curriculum for the state, you know, for training, academies, all this. And, and so there's a policy side to this, because what ends up happening, say with George Floyd or any other situation, is they're going to compare this to what would a reasonable officer, officer given his or her training, do in that same situation? And if the answer is the same thing, they have the power to, to put death on you, right? right. Qualified immunity. Uh, and so the training is part of it, but then there's a cultural component of it right. that, that says that, okay, I still have to believe in this and I have to have a spirit behind this that is driven by humanity, equality, all the things we're talking about today. Because, you know, I do this in my class, for example. The First Amendment is 45 words in the United States. For 45 words. Uh, I could give you another amendment in another country that sounds exactly the same, and it's actually in North Korea. All right, so you can say the things and have the words in place, but the key is how you actually live by it. So I was compelled by what Tori was saying about, well, you know, I'm, I'm telling my kids, you know, do all these right things, but I still can't guarantee the outcome that should happen when you do the right things, as Ryan just spoke to. Um, so one thing, you know, just pivoting to Latroy real quick, uh, I remember when we talked way back for an interview for ESPN, and you told me about what you did when you first moved into your town. I don't know if it was in Texas or, and you said you, you yeah. went to the police, right? And introduced yep. it. So why don't you uh, elaborate that? And after that, I want to hear about Tori's story because I know he had a direct experience with law enforcement. Yeah, it's kind of weird, that story, because then if he tells the story, you'd be like, wow, you did that to the same police department that screwed yeah. over my buddy and my little nephew. So, but yeah. when I first got here to Texas and every city that I played in, I always, you know, immersed myself into the police department just so they could see my face. Like Tori said, they could get to know me and know what type of person I am and understand that I'm not a threat. I am not a threat. And I did that here in Prosper, had the guys come over, you know, ask them who their favorite baseball players were, you know, Nolan Ryan, oh, I got a Nolan Ryan ball, here you go. You know, I did the same thing with the fire department, just so they understood that like, I'm not a threat. You know, I'm on your side. I understand that you have a, a very tough job to do every day. I got a cousin that's police chief in Indianapolis. I got nephews that are police officers. I just make sure that the police know who I am, just know who I am. So when they see me, you know, make sure they know who my wife is, make sure they know who my daughter is because she's driving out in the city and they can be like, okay, well, that's Latroy's daughter or so-and-so, just to be on the safe side. I don't think anybody else of any other color does that. And I do it for my own safety and I do it for the safety of my family. But Troy and I actually do, we raise money for police officers here in Prosper and Salina every year, once a year in January, we have a poker tournament. We go out there, we have Matt Kemp, our, myself, and uh, uh, Michael Young, and Ken, everybody comes out there, Vernon Wells, and we come out there and we have a good time. And they like, wow, you guys are fun. And it's been, what, three, four years now. So they, they understand the build. We built relationships with you and we get to know you. Then it's like, wow, I know you. So I'm, I got a love for you. Only love requires relationships. If you don't have love, that means you don't have no relationship with anybody. So if you don't love us, that means you don't know us or we don't know you. So that's what we're trying to, we need to get to. And that's the point. Um, uh, Glavin was talking about my experience with um, law enforcement in, in Newport Coast and Crystal Cove uh, in California. 
And man, it was the worst thing I ever seen. You know, period. I'm thinking I'm comfortable, I, which I shouldn't have been comfortable. But I'm driving in Newport Coast, going to my house, like la 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 la, like I'm in a free yeah, spirit. Yeah, you got that wake up call. <laughs> I got that wake up call quick. Mm-hmm. Then I realized it doesn't matter if you're a businessman, a philanthropist, or or a great guy, because I'm still black. I went into the place and and the alarm just went off for a second and then I cut it off. Maybe an hour later, I see cops jarring my door and around the corner and I open the door, I say, everything okay? And they said, freeze with the guns out. You know you coming to Tory Hunter's house. <laughs> you already know that. The young guy had his gun down, but the older guy had his gun with a vein popped out of his neck. My hand, I'm on one leg. He said, sit the F down. And I said, I say, hey, man, this is my house. Calm down, man. Calm, calm your guy down. He's just kind of like looking like, I think I know this guy. The other guy still has the gun. And he says, is anybody else in the house? I said, no one else is in the house. This is my house. I just got done playing the Dodgers. I didn't say nothing about baseball. I was just, I'm telling you, I just got done playing the Dodgers. And he walked me in the house with the gun in my back to go upstairs to get my license. And then when I showed him my license, the other guy said, he says, I knew that was you. And the guy said, who is he? He said, he played with the angels. This guy who had the gun on him, he says, oh, I'm an angel fan. Can you leave me tickets? And then right now. <laughs> You're lying, Tori. You're lying. <laughs> Come on, dog. Come on, I man. Lying, Tory. man. Tory, I'm taking my Tory Hunter jersey off the wall right now <laughs> because you lying to me. No. You lying. It's, it's fact. And Tory, when this happened, when this happened, you didn't make a big deal of it at the time, right? You talked about it, but you kind of had to play cool. Yeah, and I, I put it out there. I said, this guy don't believe I live here. I was trying to be strategic about what I was saying, but I wanted them to know. And then I said, all right, he walked me in there. Then I find I called Major the Baseball. They called, I don't know, FBI or whoever. They called Newport Coast Police Department. They called and apologized. And so I said, all right, look, they did what they had to do. But I didn't want to make a big scene. My agent said, don't make a big scene. My front office of the angel said, don't make a big scene. But it should have been a big scene because I didn't have no video. Everything's being videoed now. But if I would have got shot, they would have came up with something that said I was I was being aggravated or aggravating or or I was agitated Aggressive. or I was angry. Aggressive. I, they could say anything and guess what you're going to do? Believe it and I would have been dead because you thought I didn't live there. Your mind went straight to criminal. When I saw it, I was truly just disgusted for human life. And, and I know I'm seeing another black man, someone that looks like me on the ground. And it's a damn shame that I'm used to seeing that. And that's the first problem. You know what I mean? Every other week, we're seeing one of our black brothers or sisters gunned down, hunted down on social media. And, and, and I'm sad to say, I was... I'm comfortable with it watching that video when I saw it. Like, and I sat, I feel bad for myself being comfortable. And the disregard for human life as that man's knee was in the back of his head and hearing that grown man call for his mother was truly disgusting. And that's where, listening to y'all, all your stories, just the lack of respect, man. Like, you don't have to like me. I'm not like, we're Americans. We don't like each other. We get that. Like, you know what I mean? We have a God given right not to like each other, you know? But just the respect for human life. And, and, and people are sick and tired. And, and I will say this, and I'm, I'm going to leave it at this. I'm hearing a lot of people talking about the looting. You're, not, you're saying this is our community. Why tear it up? 
but you're not policing us like it's our community. So why the hell do we care if you're not policing us and giving us the common respect and dignity as a human being in our communities when you come and police us? That's the real problem. So I love that, Tori, and you guys are going out there and having a relationship and just showing your human side with the law enforcement. Because let, let me say, law enforcement, it's not easy job. I, I'm just disgusted with it. I know I'm with you. I, I, I'm tired of seeing this on my social media. I, I, I thought I was going to be able to shield my kids from it, but I'm not going to shield them anymore. I'm going to be very honest with them and very candid with them because I want to protect them. So, But uh, I was truly disgusted when I saw that. I know that complaining keeps us keeps us stuck. We got to find solutions. You know, us as African-Americans, but also as Americans right. come together and say, hey, mm -hmm. what's the solution? People at the top, leadership, like, like uh, Glad Doug was talking about, leadership has to come together from whatever it may be, because we got a black America and an Asian American and a, and a white America. That's divide. A house divided shall fall. Right. Republican, Democrat. We're going to fall every time. Let me tell you something about baseball players. People from Dominican, Venezuela, Asia, white, black, they come together. And you know why they play together? Because they got a common goal. We got to win the World Series. And guess what? Whites, black, Asian, everybody say, get in line. Are you late? Man, come here. Let me tell you something. White or black. Are you late? Dominican or Venezuelan. Stop, bro. Do this. Stay in line. Let's go. Let's do what we have to do. And because America has no goal, we don't have a goal. We have nothing we're trying to reach. That's why we're, do, we're going all over the place. I, I, I got a question. I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, Tori, but I got a question for all y'all because I, I, I've looked at y'all as vets and, and heroes in the game, and, and I appreciate the guidance coming across each and every one of you guys. But I, I have a question for everybody. I've asked black people and white people this. They had a problem with us kneeling. You have a problem with us hashtagging. You have a problem with us speaking about. You have a problem with us being silent at basketball games, even though we're still doing our job. You have a problem with all these social platforms that are nonviolent. Now you have a problem with looting. What is, what's the answer? What's the communication answer so we can all be on the same page? What's, right. the, what's the honest platform that we can have? Because you blackball a Kaepernick for kneeling for the same things that we're talking about now. So... It, it, it this seems like a no win, and I have yet to get they don't an answer. Want you to use your platform. They don't okay. want to hear a speech. They Shut want to hear silence. Shut up and play. When you hear that word, Shut, Shut up and play. Right. Okay. They don't. And, they, it, and, it, and it's it, one it, thing that they know about about uh, our people, our people, that we cannot, and we hadn't showed that we can collectively get together right. and go this way. We collectively get together, and then we go. <clears> this, we separate. Every time, and they know that. My grandfather told me that s slavery taught us how to survive. Slavery didn't teach us how to live and do anything. It just taught us how to survive. And we've survived all these years, 400 years, that's all we've done is just survive. Every man for himself. We don't have that cohesiveness that we need to take that next step. You talking about what they want us to do? They want us to be quiet. But they know once the going gets tough, they know we're going to separate and divide instantly. That's just how we've always rolled. We're going to separate and divide. We can stand, stand side by side, African-American minorities and our Caucasian brothers and sisters. I think that's when the needle can be moved in the right direction. But there's a lot of things that we don't do, right? 
We don't get out to the we don't get out to the polls and vote. You don't like that prosecutor, like they were saying, like killing Michael. You don't like that prosecutor. Get out to the and vote him out. Get out there and do it. You cannot have a voice and not use it. Right. You cannot have a voice and not use it. Okay. Talk about go back to George Floyd. Right. My daughter told me about it. She sent me the link. I didn't even finish looking at the link. I'm like, well, that's messed up what he did. She was like, Dad, when he died, I'm like, no, he didn't. Right. So when I looked at it again, I got sick to my stomach because I had German Shepherds. And I know how do you how do you control the dog? You grab him by the neck. And at that moment, that's what he did to George Floyd. Right. And he showed him that you're not supposed to speak. You're not supposed to to um, rebuttal what I'm saying. You're supposed to be lay down and be submissive and shut up. And I think Latroy, part of it too is is you know we talk about these systems in place. So although they're you know part of that lack of cohesion is by design. You know it's also by design. And you talk about voting. Well, there's voter suppression. There's there's all these efforts. And when you're in survivor mode, which I totally respect and understand because you say, well, but man, I got here. And we just talked about speaking out while you're a current player. Why is that so, that's, a, that's notable in and of itself. Well, you, you know, you're at the top of your craft, you, you've made a ton of money, but you, you, you feel like that risk. And not only just to your clubhouse, you know, as Jimmy pointed out so well, but it's also the consequence, especially now, backlash and, and sponsorship, whatever. I mean, you see with Ka- Kaepernick, you may not right. ever play your sport again, right. and, and you're peaceful. Uh, so I, I think Latroy hit on a point about silence. And, but the, the other side of silence, when there's power to do something, is that is a position, right? And I think the, the complicity, right, the, the fact that you're just endorsing the status quo, because status quo rewards people who have power already. Uh, you already have power. Why, why are you going to change it? You, know, you mentioned with law enforcement having these experiences. Like for, for me, uh, I had a positive experiences growing up because they were my volunteer coaches, right? Police officers in my hometown. And actually a lot of my teammates retired from law enforcement later. You know, they've right. had 25 years service. I uh, also, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you guys about law enforcement within your teams, right? You know, the, their security, it's sort of how, how law enforcement and baseball actually have a very interesting rhythm to each other because we get the unions, we get the same kind of elements, the, the code, right? You don't speak. Uh, you know, what can you tell us about that experience uh, for you inside the locker room or while you were currently playing, when you were currently playing? I think it goes back to um, as far as all the, the law enforcement we had in baseball my whole career is only because they knew us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might know – uh, us as baseball players, but they got to know us on a personal level, so they knew what kind of people we were, right. and and so it was easy to have a relationship with them. And I had a great relationship because I know who they are, and they know who I am. Uh, it won't be the same with someone of my 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 color, uh, skin color, that was out in the street. Crack jokes with with them. We felt comfortable being around them, but when we go outside that because we didn't have a relationship with anybody like that and they didn't know us, then we felt threatened. And, 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 and maybe it's just, just being black and, you know, having the stories. It's always on the back of your mind. This dude is cool. This dude is nice. Yeah. He sees me walking in the tunnel. He sees me walking out the tunnel. He helps me to my car. They make sure we get on the bus. Right. 
But if I wasn't in his clubhouse and I wasn't on the street and he got called to a situation, well, I get the same treatment. Right. Well, he pull up to the situation like, oh, no, okay, I know this is Jimmy. I, let me try to defuse the situation. Or is it he's a police officer, he's doing his job. Does he even recognize me? Because the first thing he's right. going to see is a black person. He doesn't know. It could be broad daylight. It could be the middle of the night. It could be dark. You just don't know a lot of these things. But even though we have these relationships and, you know, we meet guys, we get to talk to them, they see us in uniform. And obviously it's like that celebrity factor. But as soon as you take that uniform off, it's always, at least for me, it was always in the back of my head, will I get the same treatment if this dude pulled me over? And maybe you guys can speak to this. I mean, uh, the degrees of separation, and this is what I'm hearing, the degrees of separation uh, from George Floyd is is basically zero, right? I, I saw mean, him. I saw myself right? in him. I saw yes. myself in him. Yeah. So speak to that. I mean, and I and I think that's kind of what we're talking about to a certain degree because it's like that was me on the ground. That was me. And right. and we, you know, all of us here did pretty well, right? We made some money, played, you know, won some World Series. You got some MVPs. We got we got it all. All stars. You guys are an incredible group. But. Um, so what is it about that? Because there's a positive because we relate to each other and we have a community of a shared experience, but there's also this lumping together where we don't have this luxury of individuality and get that benefit of the doubt. Uh, so, so what is it that you express about why are you George Floyd also? I, I feel like I'm George Floyd because every case we've heard from Trayvon Martin to George, they were doing normal stuff. They were walking down the street, eating Skittles. Who the hell doesn't eat Skittles, man? Like, you know what I mean? They were doing things that were normal. This A guy selling tapes or, 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 or DVDs on the side of the road. We've seen that everywhere. That, you know what I mean? Like certain situations Purchase. that, yeah, we've, we've seen that. So that's where you connect with that person. It's not like we saw somebody get arrested on a baseball field. We saw people getting arrested and getting attacked on normal, everyday broad daylight streets and that's where the connection for me is it's like man i could be walking with my daughters and get hemmed up i've been pulled over with my daughters and, and really yelled at them to tell them don't say anything out of fear for my life and for their life and that's where the disconnect comes because now you don't feel like a human you don't feel like a man you know what i mean you feel less than and that's a feeling that no one wants to feel and i don't care if you're black or white you don't want to feel less than and as a culture and as a people we're tired of feeling less than and i think that is the problem right there it's like treat us with the same appreciation and respect hell scratch appreciation this gave me some respect i mean there's zero degrees of separation man when you look at it if you don't see if you're an african-american man and you don't see yourself in that position if you don't see your brother your cousins, your nephews, if you don't see them in that position, I don't know what you're seeing because it could happen to you in a split second. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take that long. If you encounter the wrong police officer, it could go bad real quick. And I think, I know all the guys on this call, we completely understand that. And we're at the point in our life where I don't know if it could get to that point because we all know how to, we, we, we now have conflict resolution. You know, we know how to de-escalate now because we, we've gotten older. But what about our brothers that's still in the inner city, you know, right. your nephews, your cousins who don't, who everything is, a, is a, a disrespect or a threat to them. And they don't know how to, their only conflict resolution is to, you know, get aggressive. 
I mean, I always tell my cousin, my brother, and him now, I'm like, they be like, well, you can get caught up like that because you're going to talk your way out of it. I'm like, you know what? I've learned conflict resolution. I've definitely learned I would not match an attitude with attitude. Should I have to, should I have to be like that because I, the color of my skin? No. But I do know I have survival skills, and I know what I need to do to survive that encounter to live to see another day. And plus, we ain't throwing sliders no more. What's that? <laughs> we, we ain't throwing no sliders no more, so we got to figure it out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, man, you, you, you ain't struck nobody out of a decade, D-Train. That yeah. car ain't working no more. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah you need to get Conflict resolution. Yeah. And I know my brothers in the inner city don't have conflict resolution. They <laughs> don't think like that. And it's critical thinking. And, right. and we all, everybody on this call, we have that. We can de-escalate an issue. Nine out of ten of our other brothers, they can't do that. So that's them laying on that ground. Them screaming for their mother that's been dead for two years. That's, that's people that we know. That's close to us. That's our family. I don't know George Floyd, but damn, he looked like my uncle. Damn, he looked like my brother. Damn, he looked like my cousin. I, I, was yeah. tell, I was telling you guys earlier, I was sitting up three in the morning crying. That was one of the reasons why. Because I saw my six brothers, I saw my three sons, I saw myself, and I saw, you know, a whole slew of people that I grew up with, I know, uh, with that knee in the back of his neck, and then he can't breathe, and screaming for his mother who passed away two years ago, that means he was blacking out. I, I was thinking, my son a couple of weeks ago said, Dad, every time I go jogging in this neighborhood, everybody looking at me. So what he does, he'll take his son with him. So he can, people can see that he's a father. I'm like, that that makes no sense. He's in he's in my my daughter-in-law's neighborhood, and he's walking with her or or walking by himself, and people are looking at him. And now he tried to take his son so he can show that he's a father. He shouldn't have to live like that. We we're, we're we're 2020. That's what I did when I was younger. Why's he got it? Why's he got to go through that? So that's why I saw myself crying because I saw all my family members and all my friends and all my teammates I've ever had under there. Now, let's talk about another thing. It's a humanity thing. White people should see their sons and their, their cousins and their daughters or whoever it may be. You should see this is a human being, period. So that's why I speak out. And really, I don't care what you say. I'm telling you a truth. I'm telling you my truth. And then you say, you knock my truth. Martin Luther King did it peacefully and you still killed him. Malcolm X was violent, still killed him. The looting and the rioting is just ignorance because it takes away from the real issue at hand. And kind of piggybacking off of what you said, Troy, it's like you, you see yourself in George Floyd when on any given day, you run into the wrong cop who's feeling some kind of way, that's you. That's you. Right. And you could, like I said, you could do everything right and do everything by the book. But because this cat is feeling some kind of way, and the way I see it is, it's like, we keep asking the question, how do we change it? How do we get change? We can continue, we can talk all we want, but change doesn't come until those other folks want change right. to come. And the only way that comes is when you've been affected by it. They have not been affected by it. 
And so that's like, oh man, that's, that's bad, man. That's terrible. But until it really hits home, it's almost like you go back, right? You got Rodney King, you got George Floyd, you got Ahmaud Arbery. We got footage. <laughs> These cats are on tape. They got tape of police officers beating Rodney King. You got tape of two white guys in Georgia rolling down the streets with shotguns, number one, and then killing this man, right? Jogging in the neighborhood. You have mm -hmm. video footage of police officers on this man's neck in the middle of the street, right? All this footage, man, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's so, that's so bad. And then it was like, you go back and do the whole OJ thing, right? Where OJ didn't do it, and OJ was acquitted, and that's when it was kind of like white America got a dose of what it was like being black. Right. It was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. This, how could they let this happen? Da -da 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 -da. But this is what happens, you know, nine times out of ten to where that situation with, you know, the OJ thing, like, you got a small feel of what it's like being black and having to live in America and having these situations take place. So it's again, until it affects you, there's no real need for change. Oh, that's, that's a terrible thing that happened to that black guy. But until it actually hits home with them, it's, right. it, it, it don't have an effect. Doug, I got a question for you, man, because you said you kind of grew up with law enforcement. I thought that each, and, and I'm sound layman right here, but I thought all police stations and divisions had a, a division that oversaw overseeing like crimes like this, like eternal affairs stuff. I mean, maybe I watched too much Law and Order. I don't know, but I thought it was something. No, I, I'm being honest. Like I thought it was something like a, a, a group of people that police the police or having someone uh, from the community that you trust that were important that also can be on the board to really review these types of things because I, I gotta be funky, man. This shit is looking too casual. Each time you're seeing a case by case, they're looking more chill and more casual, like nothing's gonna happen to them. And I'm just, I'm just shocked by that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, well, a lot of them, uh, departments have internal affairs, for right. example. So if you have to investigate the, the police, uh, you know, they have internal affairs. And, um, and there's no question that state by state, it depends. Okay. So in Connecticut, we have what we call the post council. It's a police officer standards and trainings council. And we're one of the only in the country that actually has civilians on the council. Uh, so I'm one of the council members. Now, okay. So it depends on the state. And, and so we set, you know, training, curriculum, right. accreditation, legislation, things like that. And okay. I, I, you know, I think it's pretty effective, actually. And, uh, but, but there's no question to be able to listen to the public and having voices at the table. Because, you know, as, as Tori was talking earlier, if you're, if you're not in the room, and you're not having the representation, how does anything change? Um, so I think with, with law enforcement, it's no different. You need to have that representation, but then you have to really have power and a voice because, you know, I always call it color by numbers. You could make a board and color, but, but if you don't have anybody who would give them power or they have power, then you're just going to reinforce the same poor culture. Uh, so there's definitely, I, you know, change you talk about with Tori, I think you have to be in those rooms to change the culture for sure. You need more representation for sure, for sure but you also have to break down and, and sort of reestablish some of the traditions that are toxic. And there's a lot of them. 
Um, and, and, you know, we know that in, in baseball, whether it's whatever we go through, but on a smaller, obviously scale. So, so I, you know, so I guess that's one of my questions I, I pose to you. I mean, what, you know, what do you see needs to, to be done? Like what, what do you think needs to be different and how would you approach it? Yeah, I'm just a washed up left-hander man. So I don't, I don't have the, the end all of anything, but uh, you know, it's easy to say, and it's, it's great that we have this platform to communicate amongst each other and vent. Um, there needs to be on ground zero, that same level without, you know, uh, destruction, whether it be on one side or the other, I think, True conversation, you know, it, you know, it's tough for me to be in politics because, you know, people take stance before they even hear the question, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's a situation where it's like, hey man, have enough respect and decency to listen to this man. And right now I think it's just a situation and that's why you're seeing all the looting. People don't want to even want to be speaking anymore. We're tired of this. I, I, I think, uh, it, I don't think it's the best way. I agree with Rhino that it, it, it's, it puts a lot of pressure and it kind of takes away from what the real issue is. But at the same time, man, people are tired and sick and tired. And they, they, they tried to have this discussion with people of different backgrounds, of different colors. Glenn, your, your, your uh, police department, because they have citizens on the board. Right. Are in the room. So you come in with a completely different mindset. If every state and every police force had civilians in the room from blacks, whites, Mexican, minority, everybody. They would have to change some of the laws and the policies. And we get into, you know, excessive sentencing. We can go down a whole nother line and the laws that need to be changed. Like the systematic, you know, our school system that, you know, the laws that put, you know, African-American men take them out of their homes and then make fun of the, the, the kids that grew up with no fathers. Right. Your excessive sentencing and and the sentencing was greater than what you would have gave a Caucasian person. You, you know, it. also too though, not not to cut your guys off, but like you need to have police officers that are from the neighborhood too, that have a pulse and a feel of what's going on in the neighborhood. That also helps as but well. How tough is that, Dontrell, when we grow up not liking the police? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. When you grow up not having yeah. a good a pleasant experience with the yeah. police. You don't want to be police. Right. I mean, and see, that's where my heart believes What you want right. to be when you grow up. And it says alive. Right. And no, you're a thousand percent right. And that's why when I'm watching these videos and I'm seeing people of my skin color that's in law enforcement, my heart bleeds for them too because they're trying to do their job. There's a lot of videos that's coming out right now that are the black men that are standing on the front line trying to calm people down. And look, look, I got kids, man. I want to get home. I just want to do my job. I want to keep you safe and I want to keep myself safe. So, Kudos to those guys that are on the front line right now. I'm seeing a lot of videos like that. Bravo. We need more men like them. But you're absolutely right, man. Like, I damn sure didn't want to be a cop growing up. You know what I mean? So you're absolutely right. But I think we just need more people from the community to police our community so then, you know, everybody can just live live as one. In our community, we're taught to fear ourselves anyway. Right. I mean, let's let's, let's be honest. It's not like – only whites and others are taught to fear us. We're taught to fear. If a dude looks a certain way, we got to watch out for this cat. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. One of my uh, homeboys growing up, his dad was a police officer. Big, big, big William. William right. Levy. You know Will Levy. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hell yeah. 
I remember growing up, like I said, my perception is like, why do you want to be a police officer? You know all the people in the neighborhood. You are the ones that's going to go arrest them. Like, you know who to go, right. go get. Like, yeah. why are you going to go snitch? You know, that, that was a mentality. Yeah. But racism is, isn't just, you know, black versus others, Mexicans right. versus others, white versus everybody. Like, it's, 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 it's systematic. If we don't break the chain ourselves, how can we expect others to first? Although right. they may have been the ones who, and in and, and our eyes, you know, perpetuated, you know, in movies and the way we're pre, uh, perceived on TV, all the stories they, they showed, the, the, the bad stories and this right. blackness, African-American, and this guy did this, this guy did that. But if we don't start respecting ourselves enough to be like, you know right. what, what can I do? And like, we can only, if we can change one person and that person change one person, start that line, right. that's how it helps. But if, if, if we're not willing to, after this is over, Go back and you know, and and as and as a race of people and as a, and culturally make a change, then it's just going to repeat itself in another 15, 20 years. It's going to happen again. I, I was, um, you know, thinking about us being out of chains, but yet uh, there's a chain in our brain that hasn't been unlocked yet. If we renew our mind, things will change. I like that we're we're filming everything. That's another. That's a step. Everything is getting videoed. It's filmed. But Albert Einstein said the world would not be destroyed by people that do evil, but it's going to be destroyed by people that don't do anything about, they just sit there and watch it. Now, I remember Michael Todd, he's a pastor. He said, it won't take organizations to, to make a change. It's going to take organisms, meaning like us, people. Those, those cops that were there when Michael Floyd, I mean, uh, George Floyd, was his neck was on the ground with uh, uh, what's his name had his, his uh, knee on his neck. Those cops gotta say ease up, get off of him. You gotta you gotta hold them accountable because if I was with with Duntrell and Latroy and Duntrell wants to go off on somebody, you know if I don't say Duntrell ease up and he ends up hurting him or kill him, guess what? I go to jail because I'm an accomplice. I'm with him. Yeah, so absolutely. these things gotta—they got to be held accountable, of course. But that's the thing. That's a solution where we can have a, a U.S. justice uh, program where they can come and watch all these violent acts and or or anything that happens violently. They come in and, and check this out and say, "Hey, this is what we, this was wrong. This was right." So if we can get the people involved and 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 get cops to be accountable for one another, just like we do in the clubhouse. I think that changes too. When Ken hit me about this story, when he initially texted me, my first reaction, and I'm and and I'm telling y'all this, and, and I'm embarrassed to say this, was, man, I don't know if I want to touch that. You know, right when I heard it, I said, man, I don't, I don't, I don't. You, you guys read texts all the time. We like, yeah. man, I don't know if I, 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 I don't know. That's how, that's how you work at Fox it. Sports. You know, I got a good thing over there. You know, you see the Emmy over here on my shoulder. You know, <laughs> it, 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 you know, so it, you know, so it, it was one of those things where I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I'm like, uh, and I thought about it for a second. Man, you better speak on that. Like, th th this is what we need you to do. Like, a shame on you for not wanting to speak on that, man. Like, you better address that. And, and, and use your platform and you guys are absolutely right man so I, i'm just letting y'all know because we in the sharing tree but um you know it it, it it it's a lot of people that are out there that feel like man like and i'm thinking as you guys are speaking and i'm hearing all these stories i'm like i wrote it down i said man i, I need to talk to some cops man and I, i'm gonna be easy about it it's almost like going up to a tiger like easy man like i, I just want to get some you know dialogue with you you know and, and some banter back and forth about where your head's at 
But I think a lot of us need to do more of that as far as just having conversation with law enforcement, man, to make them feel not at ease because it's a tough job, but just get 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 the mindset of each other, man. So discussion is definitely needed from, from the ground up. Uh, how I got on the police council was uh, was an experience that I had. Uh, I, li- I used to live in Hartford, Connecticut, and we were on the border of this town, West Hartford. So Hartford's a city, black and brown majority, uh, a lot of poverty, and West Hartford is sort of this elite suburb, right? So, you know, different, I mean, night and day. And we happened to live right on the border of, of West Hartford and Hartford, in the Hartford side on the city. And um, so one day I'm out there shoveling. We had a bunch of snow days in a row. I was like, I'm getting this minivan out of my driveway because these kids got to get to school. They've been home for four days. So I'm out there shoveling. I'm shoveling. It's like middle of the day. It's freezing. It's like negative one. And I look up and there's an officer and I'm looking at the car and I'm pretty good with cars. And I I saw that it said West Hartford. It didn't say Hartford. They're two different towns. I was like, why is a West Hartford police officer, you know, parked across the street? This is strange. Like what, you know, so I was all disoriented. And he starts coming towards me. I'm like, so I kind of stand up with my shovel. Like, and I expect, you know, hey, I'm lost. Or I, I didn't know what to expect. It wasn't anything that ended up coming out of his mouth. But the first thing and really only thing he said was, so you're trying to make some money shoveling people's driveway around here? Oh, boy. That was, that was the first question. Yeah. So I was like, I mean, it was like, what? Yeah. what? You know, so, and it was a moment where I said, well, my reaction now matters everything. Right, everything is hinging on how I react. If I take the shovel and pick it up, if I, right. you know, and 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 it's amazing because I got buried by you know a local editorial about oh it's overreacting because I wasn't I didn't end up getting shot. But when I talked to the guy, I said uh, I, I kind of said, well, I'm just trying to. This is my house, okay? I'm in my driveway, <laughs> and you know the guy eventually is like happy shoveling. But there was there was no introduction, no apology, no nothing. And the thing that was so educational about it was. I realized then that it wasn't me going over to the West Hartford PD or the Hartford PD. And, and it was about finding out that this police council was the one that actually called the shots on how policing is done in the state. And it took me, you know, months and 18 months and I had all the access and privilege of anybody. Uh, but that's what it learned. So the access to the process is so difficult for even someone who has access. Right. And my wife's an attorney and the whole nine yards. Right. So it took me a while, but, but it ended up being a, you know, a constructive lesson. So I think you, know, you talk about change, it, does, it has to come from, you know, Martin Luther King used to talk about, well, you need the SCLC to be on the streets, but you need the NAACP to be in the courtroom, right? right. You know, there's slow work and there's sort of the, the in your face, I, this is unacceptable. I got to remind you about this. And I'm going to keep it on your neck like this officer was on this, this poor man's neck, right? You got to keep it, the pressure on, but then you also need that slow work. And, and that's where we have so little access and, and it's political and it's all different types of currency. Uh, so, so I think, you know, I guess I, you know, in closing, I, you know, and I, you know, I'm glad to keep going certainly and, and Ken can chime in here. But um, when you talk about change, uh, you think about the next generation. Uh, you think about the future. And, and I used to, I was a systems engineer in college, and we used to talk about the system as it is, the system as it will be if nothing changes, and then there's a system as it should be. That's where we want to be. And, and I guess I pose to you, where, where do you want to be? What do you think that outcome, if you, if you could pick your own world and draw it, 
when it comes to race in America? What what would you draw? I mean, me, it's simple. It's just when I see law enforcement behind me, I want to live in a world where my heart doesn't race. Mm-hmm. And we can go from there, you know. And, and that will be a telling point about a lot of different things socially in the world. When I see a law enforcement, my heart doesn't race and I truly feel protected and served in my community. That's the world I want to live in. The world I want to live in, I want to see the same resources put into the African-American minority communities in the school system so we can have a chance to be successful in this very difficult world. Without the, without the resources, you know, our schools in Gary, Indiana are crumbling down to the ground and you drive six miles away and those schools are brand new. You go to a new school every 20 years. My high school is 50 plus years old. I want to see money funded to the inner city for education because without education, it's going to be a tough go forever for African-Americans and minorities. Yeah, man. I, I would like to see just all of us equal, you know, give me a, give me an equal share, put me on the line where I can race you. Don't, don't let me grow up in the negative. You know, I, it's going to take us, like I always say, it's going to take us. We, we got to take responsibility and ownership of our own selves first. So if I feel like all the time my mama owed me, my brother owed me, my daddy wasn't around, he owed me, I'm going to grow up angry. I, I feel like all our people feel like America owes us and we haven't been paid that debt. But they're not going to pay that debt back. We got to cancel that debt and we got to say, you know what? I'm going to cancel that debt and we're going to come together. We're going to fill, fill this thing out. Let me tell you something powerful about Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, she, she went and prayed and, and God gave her a, a message, build an underground tunnel. And she did shh, quietly. We, we talk and gab too much, but if we do something for ourselves and go underground and do it and build it back up, then things will change for us as African-Americans. I would like to see, as everyone else said, you know, just purely opportunity. Put me in position so that I can show you that I'm smart enough, that we're smart enough. Let me bring up other people. So opportunity is, and education is great, but at that big table, that's where we need to be. We need to have the opportunity there. They'll give us opportunity to move around and snake around and get up to a certain level, then it's, it's cut off. That's it. You're not going to get any higher than that. Put us at the top of the tops. Put us in that, in that 1% of the 1% and let us try to run what we can do. We've done it once. You had Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We were getting too wealthy. They came and burned that down. Only they knew that we, if, 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 if they actually let us show what we can do, we'll be equal. And they will see that, but they'll never let us be more than three-fifths of a man, period, point blank. Yeah, I mean, I would say, Jay, yeah, I mean, I agree. It's like it's, it's showing what we can do, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, you're going to cap that because they already know what we're capable of doing by doing this. Like, back to the origins of Africa, like, black men and women were kings and queens. So, it's, I mean, and then to be brought here and to be made less than, that's the first thing, is that it's understanding who we are and where we came from as people and what type of people we are. We are kings and queens. Now, for that being said, everybody, can be a king and a queen. That's white, black, Asian, whatever, whatever have you. Everybody can be that. And the way I see it is, is I just wanted to be able to 
be able to walk around and just be an American. Like Trail said, it's like driving your car and the police are there and you're not worried about that. You're not, you're not, you're not, you know, trying to fumble through or, or feeling nervous or walking down the street and worrying about this or that and just being able to go about your everyday, have your kids be able to go about their everyday and not have to worry about them having to go through it, but just to be seen, not just as African-American, but as an American. That's, that's the biggest thing. Like, we're all Americans. Like, yes, everyone comes from different places, but here we're all supposed to be Americans. That's what it's all about. And like we talk about the baseball mentality, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Venezuelan, Asian, Korean, whatever. Like when we're all in that clubhouse, it's a family. Right. And that's, that's, that's what America's supposed to be. This is supposed to be the melting pot. This is supposed to be the family. Right. So when, when it comes down to that, that's what it's really supposed to be all about, man. I mean, and it, 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 it's just, it's so, so saddening and so heartbreaking to see where we are right now. Uh, my parents grew up in the South, man, Birmingham. Moms and pops was right in the middle of it. Like, right. you know, and, and all the segregation and everything that took place. And, and to be going through this right now to where down the street here in Atlanta, people down there acting stupid, you know, Philadelphia, people down there acting stupid. It's, it, it's just saddening to be where we are in 2020. And it's like looking at my kids and having to explain to them and, and, like what what's with what's going on in the world and that look you guys can be the the, the people that help kind of change this and and can turn this whole thing around and make america america and not have it be as diverse like segregated or whatever within but be be true americans man that's that's what it comes down to wow that was amazing uh jason stark back with ken rosenthal and doug uh I applaud you two guys. I especially applaud Tori, Latroy, Jimmy, Ryan, Dontrell, Doug, you too, obviously, uh, for just for your honesty, your eloquence, uh, your just your raw emotion in expressing things that obviously all of you feel very deeply. And, and you know, and not just as athletes, but as human beings living in this time and place. Um, I can say I experienced this broad range of emotions myself in listening to these guys, reading their words earlier this week. But here's one thing that struck me. <clears throat> uh, we know these men. Uh, Ken, you and I have covered them. Uh, we've spent hours in conversation with them. But we've never had this conversation with them. At, at least I never have. I've heard some of these thoughts. I've heard some of these stories, but uh, it, it told me something about how difficult it is for active players to say what they said within the culture of baseball. You guys touched on that. It uh, came up uh, in the conversation. And so to hear them in this setting, uh, it, I, I, it was just such a powerful experience. I felt like they invited those of us who don't walk in their shoes into their world. Uh, this allowed us to reflect on what they live with, what people of color live with every day in modern America and what those of us who don't live in their shoes should be doing and thinking 
and saying. Uh, you know, my my wife and I both read this piece earlier in the week and we talked about it. And the first thing we did was contribute to the Jackie Robinson Foundation. Uh, we, we just felt we wanted to do something, but there, there's so much more to do. Uh, now I'd like to know what, what you guys heard. Uh, you experienced this whole conversation live. Uh, so Ken, I'll start with you. What was that like? Well, I'm glad people are getting a chance to hear the audio because it's one thing to see the words on paper. And those words, enough are powerful, I should say, on a screen. But to hear the passion in the voices, to hear the players, to hear the hurt in their voices, that to me was part of what made this experience so meaningful and so upsetting in so many ways because. Jason, as you said, we've covered these guys. We know these guys fairly well. This is not a topic we've often broached with any player. I used to talk about this quite a bit off the record with Curtis Granderson. We would talk about different issues. And I remember one day Curtis saying to me, you know what, Kenny? Hey, white players need to be asked this question too. I'm the one who's always asked this question. And one thing that's been kind of gratifying here is to see some of the white players, Pete Alonso stands out, Adam Wainwright stands out. They've said some interesting things too. But again, to hear the retired African-American players, the guys who live this, to hear Torrey Hunter describe that situation in his house, which was outrageous, mm. in which at the time he admits downplaying because he was told to downplay it. That to me was powerful. To hear Troy Hawkins, Talk about having to introduce himself to the police every place he lives because he feels that's the best way to protect the safety of his family. That was incredible to me. I would never have even thought of that. And yet, that's the experience that African-American, not just players, but all African-Americans, they face that kind of thing every single day. And if this conversation accomplishes merely the idea of making people who hadn't thought about these issues before think about them now, that to me is a major triumph. And I don't know how you can listen to it and not think about all of these things. And it's all because of the players. They were great. I, you know, one of the things that, that struck me was, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a father. You guys are fathers. Dontrell talking about how he'd always tried to shelter his kids. And now he felt like, that's not the way to go, that he needed to – this is the time to be honest, that they need to know where all this is coming from. Uh, wow, that was that was really a powerful message to me just as a dad. Uh, Doug, you, were, you moderated this. Uh, you shared some powerful stories of your own. What was this conversation like for you? Yeah, it was – you know, the, I think the challenge and the challenge that I welcomed was, you know, I'm in this sort of moderator chair, but I'm a, you know, I'm a contributor and a panelist and a, you know, sympathizer and a colleague, you know, I, I, to wear the hats. But, but in some respects, that played to my strength to to be able to work in these different circles and come in and out of it. And it's sort of sort of what a professor sometimes does uh, on, on a daily basis when you have students from all over the world and you're trying to figure out how to thread this needle. 
And, and so, but quickly when I got into the conversations, uh, you know, I felt the, the sort of connection in a way that took me back as a player, but also watch these players that now had little gray hair. And, and in fact, I was the only one who actually had hair most for the most part. Everybody had uh, shaved or <laughs> shaved it off. And, but one thing that very much came together for me that we talk about is the individuality of it. And I know that sounds strange at first blush, but the idea that when you're an African-American in this country, you have an experience that lumps you together often, right? Whether you're a voting block or whether you're, you know, everything's blanketed on you in a sense of fitting the description for something, whether it's a real uh, thing in progress or whether it's in someone's imagination, there's this constant feeling of unfairness about being clumped together, right? Now, but one aspect of that is there's a collective uh, accountability that's powerful and also very important and in, in fact uh, inspiring right you feel like you belong to some uh, a group that is uh, indelibly connected by this experience and so you can take that in a way that's very empowering and and very strong but it comes with a certain level of burden because you can get lumped together for these other elements that are are negative and unfair and and prejudicial and the individuality that shined through some of these players was seeing that although they share this experience or these experiences and even a certain commonality through them, they came at their approaches or their solutions a little bit differently, right? I mean, you heard uh, Tory Hunter talk a lot about wanting to uh, sort of disarm people and say, no, we're, we're, we're not all this way. We can, there was sort of this we almost a pleading component of it. I have to do this. I have to prove something, right? You had Latroy Hawkins, who was strategic and saying, you know, I'm going to get ahead of this. I'm going to assume that this could go badly. I'm going to work off of what I understand to be uh, something woven into America that I have to kind of be a step ahead. I'm proactive. You had Jimmy, who always comes at a very unique philosophical perspective, who who kind of approached it with, you know, a practicality, right? He kind of said, well, you know, hey, I, I know in this circumstance, this is cool, but I know I'm Jimmy Rollins and I don't know what it would be like if I, if once that uniform comes off. He had that kind of reflection. Ryan Howard, who had family on the civil rights front lines to talk about it in a way that, that framed a better America. And then you had Dontrell Willis, who was a father. He just was organic and natural and just like, you know, I'm just going to talk really right through my emotions right now on this podcast, r through these words, in this conversation. And and I think that is important because although, you know, you, you hear it more in the political landscape of the black voter or whatever, and you see that although there's a uniformity, there's also a different strategic way that we have survived to some degree, survived. Uh, and how we've approached it. Like Dontrell talked about his kids. Well, I talked to my son when he was five or six because I had to, you know, because I, I went through this experience with uh, a, the police department, a local police department. I went through this experience. And and when I had this whole thing happen in Chicago with the circle, quote unquote, circle game behind my head, that was, that was splashed on every homepage for like half the day nationally. So I was like, my kids see this stuff. 
And I just didn't have, feel like I had a choice, but I was already proactive anyway, because through that story, I believe strongly that you can be empathetic for everyone's story. And when you hear these words, you see a, you see a greater America. And, and the pain is that, you know, as someone once said, I, you know, I love America, but America doesn't love me. Uh, it's this idea that you want to hold this country to these beautiful standards and these tenets of, and these players were talking about that. Like, I'm going to not, I'm never going to give up. I have to, I, I was born here. I want to elevate this to where we live up to those words, those 45 words in the First Amendment that starts off in the negative. And it's in the negative saying a government shall not, you know, there's a shall not is because we want to restrict the overstepping of government because these are, these are woven in who we are as Americans. It's not, it's, it's not saying that we're granting you this. We're actually keeping the government from stepping on them. And that's a very big distinction. But it only exists and comes to its real true life through how we support it and how we actually engage each other through our day-to-day -day lives as Americans. It only works when we have a belief and a faith in it and that we back it up. And the African-American spirit is, is the ultimate in some respects of holding accountability to this because we came to this nation as slaves and 400 years and yet contributed and built and survived and all this sort of came together. And these players really brought that home to me when I listened to their words because they're still invested and they lived the American dream. They were major league baseball players and made a great living on it. And they're still humbled by so much uh, some of which is is pressure and some of which is celebration. Uh, so I, I was thankful in the end to go through this experience of leading this conversation. I was thankful to know that I have allies, not just because they have the same skin color, but because they have a, a vision for their best of what they think our country can be. And I was thankful to see allies that don't look like me in terms of color and as I've always known through my life about how we all need to do this together. And I was also thankful that sports, the game of baseball in particular, really showcases how sports is so much more than a game. Doug, you made me think. I, I actually have one more question. Uh, how often uh, in your time, especially since you stopped playing, have you ever had the opportunity to be part of a conversation like this with, with people like this, with players like this, uh, guys, as you said, who shared your experience. And do you think that your group, uh, you use this expression, will be bonded by having been a part of this conversation? Well, absolutely, Jay. And, and I, I would say those, these conversations were sort of how Jimmy Rollins framed it. You happen in the little foursome that you form in your group. Uh, the, so yeah, during your career, Sean Dunstan, Marlon Anderson, Robert Person, Wayne Gomes, we have conversations. We talked about navigating and, and making it and surviving uh, while we were current players. But when we leave the game, we are somewhat in isolation. We make decisions. We live in different communities. We don't have that access. So I would say, I, although I've had a lot of conversations in different ways with different people around these, of just working and advocating. I can't say I've had many around just my former, you know, teammates or peers in a post-career sense. Uh, it's interesting to think about that 
uh, excuse me, it's interesting to think about what it is, what it means to be out of the uniform. The uniform was a shield to a large degree. Uh, and although we knew not to get too relaxed about it, we also knew, okay, you know, I'm, I'm Jimmy Rollins, I'm Doug Glanville to a certain degree, and I'm in Philadelphia. You know, there's, there's a love here. There's, so if an officer pulls me over, it's going to, it's going to go better than it might have, right? You kind of, you, you don't leverage it to think you shouldn't get a ticket, but you leverage it to think that it might not lead to the outcomes that could possibly happen, uh, in the worst case scenario. So that sort of life after the game, is a, is a very vulnerable position and they captured that very well because especially when you become a parent now it's not a, it doesn't matter about you you don't know what their life is going to be even if you're playing how they're going to experience things in the world and when they, when they jog in the neighborhood or ride their bike or whatever so that feeling i thought was very well brought to life in this sort of post-career reality i mean i i outlined three major experiences just in the last six years that had these racial over and undertones that I went through that became stories. And partly I wrote them, wrote them up, but also just became national news literally around, uh, around race and uninvited, <laughs> completely uninvited, which talks about the innocuous way things can happen. And, and I found it very compelling to hear from the comments of the fans and audience and supporters uh, to know that, that was sort of a eye-opening aspect of it, and it makes it and makes it very rewarding to know that that was a conversation that created this uh, new sort of form of thought and new way to approach it. So, all I can say is Jay and 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 Ken, very thankful uh, and grateful that you participated and, and continue to bring this to life. And and uh, you know, I I just know that. It, it, it made a difference. You always talk about making a difference in one person, but I'm telling you, this made a difference in a lot of people. And for that, we, um, we should be proud and also eternally grateful. No doubt. I'm so glad that this project happened. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad people got to hear this. Um, and let's keep that conversation going, right? That's going to do it for this special edition of Starkville. Thanks to Ken. Thanks to Doug for being part of this. Thanks to those five great players for speaking from the heart. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Starkville.